Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. I'm not sure that in 25 years of pastoral ministry I've uh, had to preach a passage with greater personal and relational implications than Ephesians 6. As we wind down our series in Ephesians, it, it really does get personal for us. And oftentimes with Scripture, we approach it from a nice, clean, and safe distance, um, as if it's some sort of a theoretical or ancient spiritual phenomena. On occasion, though, it causes us to sit up and pay attention because it challenges us deeply in, in significant ways. In our ongoing study of Ephesians, we're examining ideas here that have to do with an overthrow of our lives. So I've entitled tonight's sermon, A New World Order. I uh, think Star Wars or something crazy. Uh, no, don't do that. Um, but uh, I just want to remind you about last week that we need to let the text exegete us. That is, we need to let Scripture speak to us and instruct our hearts rather than put our own our own um, you know, lenses upon it and, and tell it what it means to us. So today is one of those places where we have the opportunity to allow the word to address us in very personal ways. So I want to speak about the overthrow of our most personal relationships. You'll remember from last week, if you were here, listen to Ethan preach um, about that chapter, which if you weren't here, you need to go back and listen to it. It's one of the best sermons I've ever heard preached. It's worth uh, your time to go back and listen. I'm going to give you money. <laughs> I'll take it. <laughs> in, in chapter 5, Paul aims his attention primarily uh, and, and uh, yeah, about the relationship between husbands and wives. And today what we're going to do is we're going to consider the extension beyond that marital relationship. So we're going to look at family and employment uh, and ask the question, what does it mean to invite the Lord uh, into these places, to overthrow them in our lives as children, as parents, as employees, as employers? Paul uh, commented on marriage first. I think because marriage is an icon of God and his church, the bride of Christ, right? Marriage is the message of the Bible. It's the dance of creation right from the start. And Paul wants his reader reader to know uh, we are first and foremost rooted in that godly relationship. And then as a result, the implications proceed from there. So what we examine today is the result of marriage. And it has to do with God's advancing life in the world. It has to do with procreation, right? Um, the localization of, of uh, I'm sorry, that is in, inviting others into the dance of God's unfailing, uh, loving relationship with his people. It's a way of understanding the, God's relationship with his people in the church to us. And it happens in specific ways and relationships, just quick example. Uh, the other day I came home from work uh, a little bit late. 
uh, later than normal. And Sarah was working on dinner and she was listening to music in the kitchen at the same time. And a fun song came on and we began to dance together. And from the other side of the kitchen, my youngest daughter, Anna Keeley, uh, 11 years old, almost 12 next week, jumped out of her seat and raced over to us to get in the middle of the dance hug. Right? There was something that she wanted to be part of while mom and I were dancing. Uh, and, and she wanted to be part of what we had. And in a sense, God has invited us into this dance with him. And we do it with one another as well. And so in these nine verses from Ephesians chapter 6, there are two key relationships that offer invitations to dance. If we take the invitation seriously, our closest relationships need to be reconsidered somewhat. This is really where the overthrow occurs. Uh, first, let me look at the relationship between children and parents. Just a few minutes ago, the, the young people were excused after reading Ephesians 6, and I thought... There goes my audience. There they go. Um, but I still do have a few of you here. So if you're, yeah, if you're a young person, I'm talking to you right now. I need you to listen up for a little bit. Children, Paul says, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. So young people, I want you to take notice that it's important for you to obey mom and dad. And when you do so, you are acting in the Lord. That is, you're demonstrating your life in Christ. You're operating out of the proper manner of obedience to God. The word obey in Greek, hupakaio, means to hear under. That is, to be a subordinate under the word that is spoken over you. It is to listen attentive, attentively. By implication, it's to heed or conform to a command or authority. And so you're obeying when you do what they ask because you are under their authority. You are hearing their direction for you. The Apostle Paul says that this is right. right? It's morally good. It's justified. It's, it's acceptable. It's the best thing to do. A second, he uses the fourth commandment from Deuteronomy in Exodus chapter 20 to command children to honor their father and mother. And in honoring our parents, we fix value upon them. We revere them and their word to us. And we submit uh, that word and to them. And this is really exactly what Paul has asked of his reader to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. In fact, he makes that very statement in Genesis, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, earlier in his epistle. When I was a young man in the middle uh, or high school, I forget when, uh, it was uncool to wear a belt. I don't know if uh, any of you have had a similar experience. When I was in middle school and high school, I hated wearing a belt. My peers didn't wear a belt. I didn't want to wear a belt. I don't know what the deal with a belt was. It didn't make sense to me. But it was just not cool to wear a belt. Um, and most of the time, my parents didn't make an issue out of it until it was time for church. And then my dad would go round and round with me and around and around and around. And sometimes it would get heated, right? And I obeyed, but reluctantly most days. 
But when I did put my belt on without arguing about it, not only was I obeying my parents, but I was honoring them as well. I was submitting to them, not only to them, but I was also submitting to the Lord because dad had asked me to wear a belt to church. And uh, although I probably didn't realize it at the time that I was submitting to the Lord in that way. Young people, your parents are responsible for you to lead and to guide you. And the whole of biblical theology centers on the notion of divine revelation and the receptive response to humanity. Think of this. God speaks his word and people hear it and are required to obey. So the connection between hearing and obeying is essential. Hearing is always viewed with or as a process of the mind. And when God's divine revelation is the subject, humanity must respond with obedience. Dietrich Bonhoeffer remarks, the actual call of Jesus and the response of single-minded obedience have an irrevocable significance. It is only to this obedience that the promise of this fellowship with Jesus is given. So being obedient to our parents is a way to show uh, our obedience to God, just as Jesus did, by the way. Philippians chapter 2, verse 8 says, Christ humbled himself and became obedient to death. Hebrews 5, 8 says that Jesus learned obedience from what he suffered. In other words, obedience drew um, a difficulty to it. There was suffering involved. And Jesus did this because he knew uh, what was the will of his father, that he was responding out of love and obedience to his heavenly father. So John 10 verse 18 says, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. In other words, the responsibility that Jesus realizes in his life in the purpose for his life has to do with the fact that his father has asked him to do this thing and he's being obedient to it. Now, it needs to be mentioned that Paul nowhere offers a clarifier to his expectations that we live obediently to parents. He doesn't say, if your parents are worthy of obedience, then obey them. Many have grown up under parents that were not worthy of obedience. But Another person's treatment of you is not what dictates your response or your obedience. Christ dictates your response to obey. Our job as children is rather simple. Maybe I'm making it too simplistic because sometimes things can be really challenging. A lot more challenging than whether I wear a belt to church on Sunday or not. Right? But... God asks us to obey and honor mom and dad. So verse four, fathers, though, have a more challenging task, I think, because there are nuances to the commands that Paul gives us here. He says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. This challenge, I think, is greater because in it, the children determine if we're successful in this task. Right? If they don't get angry at us, we're successful. I mean, at least partially, right? Our, our kids determine their own feelings, and we influence them in ways that 
uh, in which we treat them. And so as a father, I need to be attentive to my kids to see what their emotions are so as to not drive them to anger. That's the negative prohibition that Paul pronounces. But there's also a positive way of leading. He says we're to bring them up or to nourish them holistically in mind, body, and soul, and so on and so forth. We're to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. I think, really, he's remembering the instruction that Moses gave to God's people before he released them into the promised land. You remember Deuteronomy 5 uh, states the Ten Commandments. And the first four of those commandments are the ways in which God wants his people to interact with him, with himself, with God. The, the remaining six commandments are the ways in which God's people are interact with each other. And the first of those six is about that, that sort of crossover point. How are we to understand our parents in light of God? Right? They, they serve as examples of who God is in, in many ways. And so I think Paul is thinking about this from Deuteronomy, perhaps. I suspect that he would also maybe was thinking about Deuteronomy 6. It says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Here comes the the child piece, right? You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Uh, that is to say that Moses is instructing the people before they enter into the promised land in Deuteronomy of who they are supposed to be in this new place, in a new environment, as, as a new kingdom of God, as the Israelite nation. He wants them to be reminded of how they're to raise their children here. I think probably Paul had this in mind. Maybe his audience didn't have this particular passage in the perspective from his letter to the Ephesians. But I think Paul is gently suggesting there is a manner of care and instruction for our children that is best. And he no doubt would describe that manner in the words from Deuteronomy. We're to invite our children into relationship with us in such a way that their instruction would be a natural outflowing of our time with them. That would happen as we get up from our beds in the morning and as we put our kids to bed at night and as we have breakfast and lunch and dinner with them and as we walk around to our various responsibilities with them. It's supposed to happen naturally context of this instruction, I think, comes in the natural rhythms of life's engagement together. And I kind of think, too, that there's a natural freedom in raising our kids in this way. Rather than being that hard, authoritarian, and demanding particular life actions and behavior from our kids, what happens is we get the privilege of walking alongside them and inviting them into relationship with us and, and through us into relationship with the Lord. Having said that, though, there are no scriptural guarantees that our children will follow the Lord. Sometimes we might approach a passage like this in a sort of roundabout way, thinking like this. If if we raise our kids without provoking them to anger, 
and we bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, then they'll honor us. And therefore, the promise is for them that life will go well with them and they'll live long. This passage, although we may like it to be or even wish it to be, is not a promise that if we raise our children in the Lord, they will walk with him as we hope. And I know there are a number of us who have adult children who are not trusting God in their lives. We've done our best to point our young um, men and women in the right direction, and they're not following. For those who have strained relationships, remember that what Paul is suggesting here is a new way of life and engagement with the intimate community of the family. It's deeply influenced by the ways that we engage each other as seen in Deuteronomy 6. And so I would just encourage you as you're able to spend time together, walk together, talk about ideas that are important to you. Live your lives as faithful examples of God's grace, all the while praying that the Lord would use your quiet and faithful example to instruct your children to return to the Lord. My best friend uh, from down south, Steve Woodworth, has a, a son in high school, Andrew, who has completely rejected the Lord. Now, Steve is a pastor and a missionary. He's been a college chaplain at a number of schools that I've served with him at. Last week we spoke, and I, I encouraged him a little bit in his time with Andrew. And I said to him, he asked, you know, what do I do? And I said, you know what, Steve, I don't really have a great answer for you. In fact, I called him, and I got the busy signal right away. And I just left him a message. Uh, and he called me back about 15 minutes later. And he said, I was just reading Andrew the Riot Act. You know, he had some reason for getting in trouble again. Um, and he said, what do I do? And I said, I don't know, Steve. Maybe try to find a hobby to do with Andrew. And he was like, what? <laughs> a hobby? And I was like, yeah, I don't know. I, I think probably Andrew needs to see your heart. And I know he sees your heart when you're angry with him and when you're instructing him that way. But I think he needs to see your heart in your love for him and your joy in doing things with him. Um, you know, on a bike ride or whatever, uh, woodworking. I said, try to figure something out that you guys could do together, perhaps. Because I think it would be an alternative way to instruct Andrew without speaking directly about how he should live right? in these situations. Allowing our lives to instruct is the loving and grace-filled manner of instruction from the Lord. Okay, so we move on to chapter uh, 6, verse 5 through 8. And in these verses, uh, the relationship in view here is a relationship that operates beyond the family. And I think there's a a really important dimension here also that uh, the Lord has the ability to influence in us in specific ways. And Paul says, bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or it's free. Those in authority over us at work are to be obeyed in the same manner as we are to obey and honor our parents. Paul uses the same language 
that we're to obey our masters, our, our earthly masters. We're to, in, in doing so, we're actually obeying Christ. As we work, we're to work unto the Lord and as, as if he is always watching us. And that's kind of the idea that's going on here. Uh, the other day, I, uh, I forget what I was doing. I was paging through, flipping through Facebook, looking at Father Ethan's uh, comments. And I ran across a really funny um, commercial for a, a, a coffee mug. Uh, maybe some of you have seen this coffee mug. It's a white coffee mug and it has a, a Sunday school picture of Jesus on it. And Jesus is pointing. And underneath the picture, it says, I saw that. <laughs> I just stopped and laughed. I was like, that is hilarious. Right. And I think that probably the uh, the creator of that mug was trying to be snarky and, you know, like um, trouble some. <laughs> but Paul seems to indicate there's a truth to it. Right. Um, indeed. Jesus does see everything. And so our work is to be work unto the Lord and for him with fear and trembling or respect and fear with sincerity from the heart and with a good will believers are again to serve Christ within the guidelines of the principles of submission chapter 5 verse 21 from a, uh, a week ago submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ verse 9 finally Paul says masters do the same to them and stop your threatening knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there's no partiality with him. This is where things might get a little challenging for us. Masters are to treat their employees in the same manner as their slaves were previously instructed to work. That is with sincerity and cheerfulness and without the need for approval. They're Christian masters. And so their believer, believing workers share their same heavenly Lord and their both under the same heavenly authority. One commentator states, in civil law of the cultural environment in which Paul writes, slaves had no rights as against his master. But under Christianity, the obligations are reciprocal. This is unbelievably challenging. And talk about overthrow, right? This is it right here. One common way of controlling the labor force in that day was by threat. Threat of death, threat of punishment, threat of sale. And Paul says, this practice must be terminated. So he writes, stop your threatening. Service needed to be earned. It should not come through fear of reprisal. To apply mutual submission to slaves and owners was a startling redefinition of slavery. So you'll probably note that I've taken the liberty to move the biblical language a bit from slaves to employees. Uh, I want to note that ancient slavery was debt-based and not race-based. I mean, certainly there was racial. There were racial issues. Uh, there have always been racial issues. But primarily, slaves were treated poorly because of financial rather than racial issues. And these verses indirectly address a situation that seems to be a current challenge in our community and our church right now. We have faculty and staff in the same church. We're closely connected to others in the college community. 
And the best thing we can do when we have problems and disagreements with one another is to live out Paul's admonitions. We must have the courage to personally and professionally express those differences of opinion with honesty, integrity, and love face to face. We must trust that those Christian brothers and sisters that are in authority over us will treat us as Paul is instructing here. I think they will. When our engagement regarding various concerns is clear and respectful, and because it's personally encountered, it tends to be tender and kind. Anonymity is never useful. And usually it has a way of causing difficulty. As brothers and sisters in Christ, let's assume that we are all operating out of a mutual submission to one another in Christ. Let's honor and obey those in authority over us, whether parent or employer. Let's lead and treat those we're responsible for with loving kindness and care for their health and welfare. Let's use words that bless and instruct, seeking clarification and through godly admonition. And let's refuse, refuse to allow the enemy to gain a place in our hearts that brings suspicion and anger and fear. Let's live and work for the Lord in all of our relationships as Paul instructs. Finally, after reviewing the passages, practically speaking, let me land on a couple of reasons for Paul's statements, I think. What Paul is doing here is he is overthrowing the cultural Roman and Jewish norms of the day by making these statements. He's guiding his readers to understand that there is a subversive manner of walking with the Lord that cuts against the grain of culture. In both examples, with children and parents and with slaves and masters, Paul here is setting a new tone and purpose in life and faith. Notice the subversive ordering in these verses, which includes ideas from last week, chapter 5, verse 21 and following. First, Paul addresses wives and then husbands. In doing so, he's overthrowing the typical order of prioritizing husbands. Then first children and then fathers. He's highlighting via placement the dignity of children as found in the teachings of Jesus. We just read from Jesus Uh, Matthew from Jesus himself said, let the little children come to me. He values the little ones. Then we look at Paul's ideas here. He says, for slaves and then masters, showing that slaves also have dignity as those who own their labors. And masters are to treat slaves with respect and dignity because they are in the Lord. That is, we're to treat and honor everyone as though they were the Lord himself. Notice also the individual instructions and their subversive nature. Remember, this is being written during the time when Roman rule influenced everything culturally. And under that rule, only men were meaningful participants in life, culture, and commerce. The men had all of the authority. They could do as they pleased. And so everybody else, wives, Children, slaves, they were all considered as a means to an end or useless altogether if the men wanted it to be that way. Fathers were the rulers of their kingdom. Wives were subhuman. Children were worthless in the Roman Empire 
oftentimes they were just abandoned or thrown away. Slaves were not considered human either and were intended to meet the financial demands of their masters through their work. In these passages, Paul doesn't eradicate those differences in relationship. What he does is he invites his readers to understand that there's a new world order, one that falls under the lordship of Jesus, and everything else must be understood in light of that relationship if one is truly a member of the body of Christ. This is not to say that there's no world order, that is, children are not in authority over parents, but that each relationship is lived in light of the Lord's authority over us. There are still distinctions within God's order. And Paul reforms those relationships in light of who Christ is and what he has done. Therefore, children obey not out of dread, but respect for God's ordering of creation because it benefits their future so that it may go well with you. Fathers are not to frustrate their kids, but to bring them up in the teaching of the Lord because there is a higher authority than earthly fathers for the good of those fathers and their children. Slaves can now find dignity in the menial work because they can use their hands or their voices or their skill or their lives for the purpose of kingdom redemption. And in so doing, they save themselves from dehumanizing. And masters must realize too that they are mastered by Christ and therefore must also be formed and shaped and cultivated by the loving, merciful, good master himself. Paul wants us to be aware that each one mentioned in these verses is relationally unequal. Before we are children, fathers, mothers, slaves, or masters, we are principally brothers and sisters in Christ. Our biological fathers and mothers are therefore our spiritual siblings. Remember what Paul says in chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. Be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This section of scripture overthrows power play, manipulation, abuse, all kinds of things. And Paul encourages us to overthrow the hellish, me-centered view of the world. The, the world mistakenly says the only way to personal truth and success and fulfillment, happiness and meaning is to govern yourself. And Paul instructs Christians here that there is another way. He knows that no relationship stays the same in Christ, but all receive healing, all service and all of life in whatever form or role it comes is shaped by Christ himself. So when we love, submit, obey, honor, we do not provoke to anger, we nourish, we instruct, serve with willing hearts and a good attitude and watch out for those under our care. We are clearly and unequivocally stating that we are the Lord's and he governs us. In living this way, we make a declarative statement that we do not govern ourselves as the world suggests we ought, but that we are under the Lord's authority. May it be that we allow God to work in and through us to submit to him and to one another in each of these relationally intimate places in our lives. Amen. Free at last, they took your life, they could not take your